Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement, and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. It kind of is the contest America deserves right now. And I think it is important to be honest about that and about the fact that as citizens, the vast majority of us have not tended the fire of our democracy and left that work to the professional firekeepers. And it only gets our attention when they let it become a forest fire, right? That's this really destructive thing. We're like, wow. Why did the professional firekeepers make this fire bigger? Because that is what happens. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so excited to be here with you today. And after we tackle a few of the top headlines, we are going to share our interview with former virologist and researcher Michelle Becker. We were so thankful for her for coming on the show, answering our questions, and we cannot wait to share that interview with you. The Democratic National Convention has officially been delayed. We had planned to do a live event in Minneapolis around the time of the convention. We are unfortunately going to be canceling that event. We're just not sure what the rest of the year holds for us in terms of travel, so stay tuned. But we will miss seeing you all in Minneapolis and hope to be back there again when it is safe and a great time to do so. We have what I guess you could describe as not COVID-19 related news, but Here's how I feel about it. Everything is COVID-19 related. And the outbreak definitely had an effect on this campaign, although I think that it was never going to happen after South Carolina. But in case you have not heard, Bernie Sanders officially suspended his campaign for president. What I'm interested in hearing from you about this, Sarah, is how you feel about the fact that he has suspended his campaign but not endorsed Joe Biden yet. It tracks. That's what I would say. Bernie's consistency is is often talked about. And I think from the beginning of his run in 2016, what he really wanted to do was move the Democratic Party further to the left and maintaining his place on the remaining ballots and taking his delegates to the convention so that he can have influence inside the platform committee fulfills that objective, continues to push the party to the left. He has already been very successful 
and doing that and bringing um, new people into the conversation, new people into the process and really shining a spotlight on progressive issues and progressive policies. I mean, I think that he should feel good about his impact from 2016 and this year as well. I hope that he saw the reality, which was, you know, when it was a crowded field, about 30 percent of the voters was good enough. But in a two person field or in a general election, it's not. But those 30 percent of people that are hardcore progressives are really, really important to the party and really important to the process and their voices deserve to be heard. So I think that he that there is not the extreme disdain (laughs) between the Sanders and Biden campaign that there was between the Sanders and Clinton campaign. So I think, you know, post-party convention, and hopefully if they play a really active role, we won't see some of the booing and um, protesting that we saw at the last convention, that he'll, he will support Vice President Biden and his candidacy and really move the process forward. I think it was a good call to end now, and I don't blame him for wanting to continue to exert influence over the policy process in particular. I hope they figure this out pre-convention. I know they're talking often, and it seems like Biden's public outreach to the campaign has been very warm. I would imagine the private outreaches as well. And I think that's good. And I really hope that they come to some policy proposals that Bernie can feel good about supporting so that he can have an endorsement going into the convention. Um, I just think dragging this out only benefits the Trump campaign especially in the way the Trump campaign uses that division to try to pull people away from Bernie to Trump or just to keep them at home. If you are dealing with people in your life who you are worried won't vote or will vote for Trump instead of Biden, I think it is a good moment to revisit the analysis that I was thinking through when I changed my party affiliation which is just that when you're voting in an election, and this is new for me, I have not always viewed it this way, but I think for the foreseeable future in American politics, this is where we are. You know, it is like waiting for waiting at a platform for trains and there are two trains and you can get on one or the other. I guess you can stay on the platform, but life is still going to roll on even if you don't get on the trains. And to me, if the choices of trains are Biden and Trump, it's a pretty clear decision which one I'm getting on. And, you know, Biden is imperfect. And one thing we wanted to mention today is that we are aware of reported sexual assault allegations. We have not discussed them here because this is something we tell people all the time about news. If you're not seeing it everywhere, it is important to be skeptical and to reserve judgment and hold back. And it has been difficult to find reporting from major outlets on these allegations. And we feel like it is important that we wait until we have that reporting so that we do justice to the conversation, whatever the conversation looks like. But we know for lots of reasons that if Sarah and I were nominating the presidential candidates, these would not be our two choices, you know, and yet they are they appear to be our two choices right now. And I think. I I just think it's important to talk to people about the very real consequences of what happens in November. It's not theoretical, especially in a world where coronavirus is is so prevalent and showing us the importance of what the executive branch does. I think as far as the Biden's campaign outreach to Bernie Sanders, you're seeing Biden's strengths come to play for all my devotion to the Clintons and particularly Hillary Clinton. There is a sense of like. Once we're done with you, we're done with you. Biden, sort of his his desire to to make a deal, to compromise, to bring anybody, bring everybody in, is really one of his biggest strengths. And I I think I'm, we're already seeing that with the people that have dropped out so far with him adopting student loan forgiveness, Warren's bankruptcy plan. I think you'll see this even more with Bernie's people, and I think that is to be praised. Thought a lot about Joe Biden's candidacy. And I think where I'm settling is that so often the case in this primary that when I that when I rotate something just a few degrees, all of a sudden it feels really different. And so you can get in a space with Joe Biden where he's an old white guy and he has this long career and 
oh, like it's such an important thing to go up against Donald Trump. And I'm so frustrated. And we just we have to settle for a vice presidential candidate, even though he's committed to it being a woman and just sigh, sigh, sigh. And I get it. I get it. But if you rotate it ever so slightly and you think that Donald Trump is a unique challenge and he is a very unique challenger and anybody who goes up against him will be permanently scarred, will, you know, have to shoulder the QAnon child rapist conspiracy crap, the nicknames, the just norm shredding at every opportunity. And so there's a part of me that when I I take a breath and I, I turn my perspective ever so slightly, I think, well, is it so bad that it's someone whose reputation is very solidified in many Americans' minds? Is it so bad that it's somebody at the end of their career as opposed to somebody young who will have to to will be just permanently imprinted with everything that Donald Trump throws at them? Is it so bad that it's somebody well advanced in years who probably is only going to serve one term? Is it so bad that then that person would have committed to the first female vice presidential candidate who would probably only have to wait four years? I mean, I just I think with Biden, you know, Instead of thinking it has to be this revolutionary to take on Donald Trump, if you sort of think maybe it's sort of an old general who's making a sacrifice <laughs> in a way and sort of taking the hits so that the people can flow behind them, taking out the enemy that is just so brutalizing so that we can free up space for this generation of leaders behind him. You know, when he talks about himself as a bridge, I think like... The more I think about it, the more I think like, yeah, because as we always say, Donald Trump is just a manifestation of this of the problems we face. But he is a particularly ugly one that we do have to conquer. But let's leave the energy for the problems that will remain in his wake. I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. I saw a tweet from Justin Amash, who I agree with probably more consistently than anybody else in Congress right now. But I was really annoyed by this tweet because he said <laughs> that Biden versus Trump is not the contest America deserves right now. And that annoys me on two levels. Number one, Justin Amash has publicly flirted with the idea of an independent run for a long time. And he is very media savvy and he knows what a tweet like that does. And I just think that's not helpful or productive in any way right now. But the second layer for me is it kind of is the contest America deserves right now. And I think it is important to be honest about that and about the fact that as citizens, the vast majority of us have not tended the fire of our democracy and left that work to the professional firekeepers. And it only gets our attention when they let it become a forest fire, right? That's this really destructive thing. We're like, wow. Why did the professional fire keepers make this fire bigger? Because that is what happens. And so in a lot of ways, you know, Biden versus Trump is exactly what we deserve. It's a lot of name recognition, people who've been around a long time. We feel like we've heard of them, so it must be fine. I mean, it's it's real bad because we have let things become real bad in terms of our capacity to pay attention to them and care about them. And I think that that's okay, especially because I do believe that Biden has the ability to rebuild and harness this deep bench of talent. And I think it is exceptionally harmful to the Republican Party to have Trump at the top of the ticket again, who has proven the exact opposite ability, that he is not a talent builder. He is an alienator. He is a reputation destroyer. This race is going to shape the future of these two parties for a long time. And again, I think if you're choosing, to me, the choice is really obvious. Like, who can leave us with more leaders in their wake versus who takes down even more, who who fires more people, who racks up more acting positions with no oversight? I think that choice is quite clear and that we just need to make it 
Did you see the poll where it was, you know, in 2016, Trump won among people who hated him and Hillary, but Biden wins among people that hate him and Trump? No, I haven't like, that's seen that just, one. I know we want this to be about, like, a giant contest of ideas about the future of America. It's never going to be that when Donald Trump is the candidate you are facing, ever. Like, we just need to let that go. It's not going to happen. He won't allow it. And for better or worse, he is the other candidate and the president of the United States, and he has a lot of control over what we talk about, especially when it comes to the campaign. And so to me, it's like, okay, well, if we're just, if we were looking at the entire Democratic primary, like when we had all 25 of them, who do we actually think does the best in a poll? When I hate both of them, who do I hate the least? I don't know. Maybe we did pick the right person all along. Maybe Joe Biden is the milk toast. Once you've implanted all this, Democrats are just as bad bullshit. Sorry. That survives the best. And is like, yeah, but I remember the eight years with Obama and he was, we liked him in his sunglasses. So yeah, that works. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's just what, we, that should have been the strategy the whole time. I don't want it to be that. I don't think you're that wrong. But what I will say is I don't think that this policy heavy contest of ideas is the only criterion. And I think coronavirus is a good reminder of what the job actually is. Because just like we've talked about a million times, you know, George W. Bush wanted to be a domestic policy president. He didn't get to. Mm -hmm. I am sure that Barack Obama did not want to spend the amount of time thinking about ISIS that he had to spend thinking about ISIS. You just get whatever history deals you. And so as voters, you know, we, we ought to be looking at who can handle whatever history deals to them instead of who has, mm -hmm. you know, this prescription for changing America in a way that I think would benefit my personal circumstances and the people around me best. That is an important question. It's just not the only question. And so, you know, that's why I think Sanders has never been a great candidate. I was really encouraged to hear Bernie Sanders speaking about himself as a senator in his withdrawal speech. He has a lot of muscle in the Senate that he could exercise. And for him to choose to do that, I think, makes a ton of sense and is probably going to be way more effective for the people who support his vision for America than he would have been as the president, because he will get to focus in, in the Senate on what he wants to focus on. Godspeed, Bernie Sanders, in the Senate and in life. And I have not always been filled with grace towards you, but I am happy and grateful for your impact on the Democratic Party. So we wanted to continue our uh, relatively new tradition of shouting out local leaders who are handling coronavirus well. We are going to return to the Senate and to what Congress is doing about coronavirus on Tuesday. We feel like the situation is developing so much this week that we need to give it a minute. And we'll give you a good update on Tuesday. We're also going to talk about what happened in Wisconsin on Tuesday and about ways that we can think about voting in light of public health concerns. But for right now, let's talk about these local officials that you all have shared with us who are doing the work out there. So Miriam sent us a message from Kansas City that her mayor, Quentin Lucas, is exceptional. He's canceling events. He's eating local constantly, knowing how hard this pandemic is on small businesses and has just been a model for accessibility as far as elected officials. He shared his personal cell phone number. Whew, that's a strong choice. Constituents can text him with concerns. And I just she's been really, really impressed with his leadership. So keep it up, Mayor Lucas. We also heard from a listener about Mayor Ron Nirenberg in Texas. This listener was saying, you know, our governor and our lieutenant governor have not been great here, but our mayor is doing the right thing. He issued the shelter-in-place orders in San Antonio and has been a real leader there, despite that being difficult to do in the overall climate because of the way the governor is handling things. And our listener is very grateful for it. And then we also heard... Praise for the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. He's been making national news quite a lot because he does not have kind words for Donald Trump. And I don't mind it at all. I dig it, actually. Um, this listener said, my favorite J.B. quote so far is, I understand how difficult it is to see the economy slow down and watch friends and neighbors laid off from jobs. Those concerns keep me up at night. But I will say again, you can't have a livelihood without a life. As long as Americans still have breath in their lungs, we will find a way to survive and thrive. We can revive our economy. We can't revive the people lost to this virus. Well, that made me a little teary. Good job, Governor of Illinois. 
Something that I like about him and, and other governors is talking pretty publicly about what goes on in these calls between the White House and all of the governors. That, much like our 5 p.m. briefings in Kentucky, is something that I would love to see continue. I would love to see more coordination between governors and the federal government and this willingness of everyone to be talking openly about that balance. Whose responsibility is this? What's the arrangement between the states and the federal government? I think we're getting in a a window into something that we haven't had enough of a window into before, in part because of the way people are using social media. And so I, I really value that in Governor Pritzker as well. And I value the entire conversation and would like to see us continue to lean into that. Right. Next up, we're going to share our interview with Michelle Becker. We will be right back after this short message from our sponsor. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is Bake from Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit. We were so thrilled when Michelle... Becker reached out to us. She has a PhD in microbiology and immunology from Vanderbilt, and after doing a postdoctoral fellowship in Paris, returned to Nashville and worked in coronavirus research for 10 years. She was a laboratory manager for the Biosafety Level 3 lab, where they worked on SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV. And so she has since left the lab and just so generously offered up her time, particularly to help me sort out some of my uh, personal conflict with my husband about how to 
handle this current pandemic. So I'm sure y'all look forward to that. And she has also generously agreed to answer listener questions and come back on the show. So after listening, if you have more questions, just reach out at hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and let us know. Here's Michelle. We know a lot about coronaviruses, but sometimes I think the most important word in all this coverage is novel because we have a new coronavirus with COVID-19. So can you help us um, just lay a foundation of what we understand about this type of virus, but what information we're missing about this particular one? So you're right. Coronaviruses have been in human populations for a long time. Um, There are four that circulate on a yearly basis that cause up to about 40% of human colds. But they are also circulating in the animal populations, and those don't usually come into human populations. So the idea of novel basically means it's a coronavirus in the sense that it has a genome structure and a virus structure that classifies it in that family, but it is a virus that nobody, that has never infected a person before. So the implications for that is that nobody has immunity to it. And then that also how it interacts with an individual cell, how it infects that person, the course of disease, how long somebody is symptomatic or infectious, or how it transmits from person to person. Those are all new things because those are individualistic with each type of coronavirus or each virus that actually infects the human population. And there are coronaviruses that circulate within other animals as well. It's a pretty significant, there are different coronaviruses that are also significant agricultural pathogens as well in chickens and in pigs. Actually, the pigs is a related family, but not coronavirus. Well, now we know it goes in tigers too. That's like the number one news story everywhere <laughs> I go, the tiger at the bottom. Well, I think that's just because of Tiger King, but it's fine. I'm also worried about the tiger. Well, there were, there was a cheetah coronavirus and it was it decimated part of the captive cheetah population. And it was one of those things that actually encouraged people to increase the breeding, like the range and get samples from the wild to increase the native breed or the in captivity breeding, because all of the captive cheetahs had the same, were so related genetically that when the virus hit them, it wiped out a ton of, uh, a ton of the animals in captivity. How much of what we are hearing about COVID-19 is our best guess, you know, the sort of 14-day, the possibility of immunity after you've had it versus this is good information that we can feel pretty confident about. So a lot of what you're hearing is a combination of what we know from other coronaviruses and the rapidly gathering data for this one and trying to compare and contrast what's the same and what's different. That's There's a relationship with all of that. So what we do know with other the more seasonal coronaviruses, they do have an intensity that tends to be higher or a higher prevalence um, from December through March. And there was a paper that actually tracked, did some surveillance and tracked them over a three-year period um, and tried to look at how which ones were prevalent in different timeframes. And it looks like they all circulate globally all year, I mean, globally um, all the time. and have a disease prevalence in this time period, but people's immunity does seem to wane. So people don't necessarily get reinfected the same year, but get to have the potential to be reinfected in a one to three year cycle. So we're looking at the new virus, and obviously it's not been in people long enough to be able to make those determinations. But with those circulating viruses, it doesn't look like you get infected once and then you're good for the rest of your life. It does look like that immunity phase and you have the potential to be reinfected in that time frame, kind of that one to three year. The one that's a little bit different is SARS. SARS, it looks like it came into the population. Um, the difference with SARS is that people were not infectious until they were symptomatic. And so it caused a more severe disease. But it also meant that when somebody felt sick and you told them to stay home, they were not infectious before that. And so the public health measures of self-isolating and self-quarantining actually worked. And as far as we can tell, SARS, at least the format that came in 2002 and 2003, is no longer circulating in the human population. So we don't have great immunity data to say, oh, it came back and the people that had it before now are good for life. But in animal challenges, animal uh, tests, it does look like SARS 
produced a higher level of immunity than the circulating seasonal coronaviruses did or do on a regular basis. So this could fall somewhere in the middle. We could have recurring infections within that one to three year time that's more similar to the coronaviruses that cause more cold-like symptoms, just mild colds, or it could tip more over into SARS. And there, we do have evidence with other viruses that sometimes when you have more severe disease, you actually get better immunity to it going on. So we may see this difference too. So people who've had, or, you know, like you know you've had COVID-19, which is the virus for that is actually SARS-CoV-2. So if you've had a COVID-19 infection that, or the disease and it's really severe enough and you've recovered from it, you may actually have better immunity than somebody who's had uh, asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Now that is not known yet, and we won't know that for a while, but that is one hypothesis based on some of the information combining information from the circulating coronaviruses and SARS. So I don't know if this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is the fact that first the virus um, causes some people to be asymptomatic, period, or asymptomatic for such a long time, is that just the structure of this virus? Is there a scientific reason for that? Or is it the fact that it plays out so differently in people, like some people barely notice it or just lose their sense of smell, and then some people obviously get sick and die, really about comorbidities? Or is there something to the the virus itself? So that answer, I mean, an actual answer isn't known, and it'll probably be a while before we can sift through. Um, we know that different people have different sensitivities to different viruses based on <clears throat> their own genetics and sometimes mm. based on their immune system and the way that the immune system processes and presents the different uh, infection. One thing that I'm seeing that's interesting that's different about this coronavirus compared to the other ones that we've seen is the GI presentations. And so you're seeing more and more um, people noting that they have had diarrhea or GI distress or have been throwing up and then get the respiratory symptoms. And so one hypothesis is you have the receptor that the virus uses to enter into cells all the way through your respiratory tract, but it's also in your GI tract as well. Wow. And so there is an idea that this one could also infect through the oral net, uh, pathway, that you actually get it in your mouth and it goes, instead of going just to your lungs or your, the back of your throat to your lungs, it can also potentially go to your GI tract. There is a general, this is, again, this is not specific data yet, but there's a general indication that a lot of people that have the GI symptoms first have worse disease going forward. And one of the hypotheses for that is that you have a lot of surface area in your GI tract. And so if, you're, if the virus is actually getting in that way first, it may have, it may disseminate in your body to a greater degree um, and then migrate to your lungs or then also have be infected in your lungs and you have those symptoms as well, but your body gets a little more overwhelmed with that virus replicating in your system before your immune system kicks in to, to try to fight it. So again, this is a, there was some evidence with SARS that people could shed it in the stool, and, but we didn't have any strong evidence um, for that fecal-oral route of infection. So some viruses um, really do that fecal-oral well, and some viruses are respiratory, and then other viruses are more bloodborne. And so you have a couple different pathways that viruses use to get in and out of a, a person, a host. Michelle, can you help us understand why there is so much conversation about malaria drugs in connection with coronavirus? So there's a couple of things. Um, one thing is that when the, the doctors are on the front line and they're just dealing with um, the patients that are coming in, they're dealing a lot with symptoms. And so, number one, they're just trying to see what helps. So the first line of defense a lot of times is dealing with whatever those respiratory symptoms or whatever they're presenting with. I am not, I don't know exactly why they tried the malaria drugs at the beginning, the um, hydro, hydroxychloroquine, but I do know that they tend to start with the drugs that they have available, even if they're not specified for that. Obviously, it's a novel disease, so we don't have drugs specifically targeted for that yet. So they'll just start with whatever's in the pharmacy at some level. The malaria drug, this um, hydroxychloroquine, has anti-inflammatory properties. 
And so one of the things that you do see with um, COVID-19 disease is this, the body's overreacting in some cases to try to stop the infection. And that a lot of that is an inflammatory response. Um, you've also probably, you might have heard cytokine storm that's going on just because the, the body is like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, we're trying to take this and get this under control. So I mean, that's what they, happens with the mucus in the lungs, right? That's what that is. Say that again. Like when your lungs are filling up with fluid, is that sort of a symptom of, of an overreaction almost more than anything else? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that, you know, there's, there's a difference between the disease that the virus causes directly by getting into cells and making new virus and maybe bursting those cells. Um, but there's also what we call immune mediated damage, which is actually damage that your body does sort of to itself by the immune system kicking in and trying to get rid of it. And some of it is, I mean, it, it's necessary, but the immune system is, is really important, but it's also potentially dangerous because its job is to kill its own cells in a lot of cases. So you have, you're, there's a lot of regulation in that system to ramp it up and then to ramp it down. So depending on how the virus is interacting with the immune system and, target, and turning it on, Sometimes it overturns it on or it gets going in too many areas at once and the, the system, your immune system actually has a hard time ramping back down and it can cause damage in the meantime. Um, so it's a very finely balanced system and there are, there are viruses and, and bacteria that can cause that to get turned on too much and then not turn off. But the issue with this drug is um, it's an interesting Report. So there was a report out of France that said this was an effective treatment. It was the hydroxychloroquine in combination with an antibiotic as azithromycin. And I just saw a report actually today that there's another group in France that basically did a more careful examination of this in their hospital with um, patients that had come in and had been treated with that drug, and they see no difference with uh, people that were treated with the drug and with and people who were treated without the drug. So the, the hard thing is there's a difference between anecdotal evidence and actually evidence, like data science, careful research. And people have a tendency to believe anecdotal evidence, especially when it comes from a trusted source or when it sounds like it solves the problem or it takes care of something. You know, if Uncle Jim, who's a doctor, says, this works, then we believe him. But there is a bias there that is not necessarily supported with data. And so as, again, there, people are moving fast. All of this is moving fast and they're trying to step in and meet a gap and meet a need, which is great. Um, but we have to take a step back and say, okay, this is potentially worked in a situation or with a couple of people, but it doesn't seem to be generally effective um, as we're getting more data that is a little bit more carefully controlled or presented. And then as that evidence grows um, and becomes part of the literature and part of the conversation, I think that we're going to see that this isn't effective. And it's unfortunate in the way that it got presented and picked up and carried in our, just in our time where everybody is grasping for information and trying to make sense of things that don't make sense. I mean, I was going to ask you if you had President Trump's email address, so you could just maybe forward that link you just read from France to him. I think that would, could be really helpful for him. Um, well, well, my I, question I, was about that, the speed at which things are happening. I'm wondering, like, as someone who's worked in this area for so long, like, what are you seeing as far as the the level of scientific collaboration and the speed at which it's happening that's giving you hope that maybe you haven't really ever seen before? Or I don't know, maybe this is this is sort of the normal way people respond. I'm just I'm I'd be interested on an insider's take on that. So I'm not doing research on this anymore. Um, I left the lab about four years ago, but I have been in touch with people, friends of mine who are still doing research, and everybody has really jumped in. And coronaviruses have been studied for a long time. These the circulating seasonal ones were set, were discovered in the 70s and 80s and research started, but there were probably five labs in all of the U.S. that had some connection with and research on coronavirus. After SARS, there was an increase in the funding and in people doing that research. It was a little harder because we had to go work in a BSL-3 laboratory 
which are expensive to build and maintain, and the equipment that you need in that lab and all of the regulations surrounding it make it make it actually pretty expensive research to do. So the SARS epidemic had the impetus to create more um, funding and more opportunities for doing that research. So SARS research then picked up the, the visibility of coronaviruses. And then MERS, which is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome um, coronavirus, came out in 2012 and was another little wake-up call. But neither SARS nor MERS were very, didn't transmit from person to person very easily. And so, again, the SARS epidemic came up and went down within six months. And MERS has been circulating since 2012, but it tends to pop up and have a little outbreak and then really peter out. And so research has been ongoing for both of these um, viruses since then. And so we had some things in the pipeline. There actually is a MERS vaccine that people have been working on um, for camels, though, not for people, um, because camels are the intermediate source for that. And there have been drugs that have been being um, looked at the group that I worked with at Vanderbilt is still working on that, and they have pulled out a couple of candidates that they have been, you know, going along on more of a normal pace, and all of a sudden everything gets ramped up. So there are labs that are able to pivot quickly and add this in and have the facilities to do this. But again, because it's a VSL3 level, um, there are restrictions on the facilities that are needed to do this and the training that you need to be able to do this. So you can throw a lot of money, and a lot of money is being thrown at this very, very quickly. And you have people in groups that can and can't pivot. So where there's a lot of support, the labs are running through these um, trials as fast as they can. They're looking at these. The, the one that actually is the most promising that we had had evidence of effectivity or efficacy with both SARS and MERS is remdesivir, which is the drug related to the one that has been used in hepatitis C virus um, to eliminate that. And so that one is, they've actually started clinical trials in that one already. Um, and that was already in the pipeline for looking at uh, being effective against coronaviruses. But they're pulling up other things that have had some level of efficacy in the, in the lab but it's a long pathway from the lab to making sure that it's safe in people and what does it actually do and does it do what it does in cells. And so FDA is fast-tracking things. Everybody's working really, really hard. Um, the vaccine trials are also going on in parallel. And they, you probably know they've started the one with the mRNA um, vaccine that was started in Seattle. But there's just some level of time that needs to happen to be able to see if these work in animals and people, as well as that they're safe and they don't cause harm, because that would be the most important thing is you want something that's effective, but also doesn't cause harm. Michelle, can I ask you about your personal reaction when we started to learn that there was this novel strain that was going to be very destructive? Was that, as someone who's thought about coronavirus and worked on it for so long, was that surprising to you or not? And as the kind of conversation around it has evolved, what has been surprising to you or seemed obviously incorrect to you from the beginning? It is not surprising at all that this has happened. Um, since, especially since SARS, people really dug into the research of where did this come from? And what that meant was that people were doing a lot of surveillance. So with SARS, SARS was linked to a wet market in Guangdong province. Mm -hmm. And they found that there was virus very similar to the one in people in two of the animals that were kept in the province, in the wet market. And they traced those back. Both of those animals were, it's a civet cat and a raccoon dog that were farmed. And they went back to the farms. And so they looked at a lot of different tracing and trying to figure out where it came from. And it ultimately looked like the bat, the viruses the precursor for the virus that ended up in people actually circulated in bats. And so there's this increased surveillance of bats all over the world. And what we find is that bats all over the world carry coronaviruses. And they carry other viruses too. And there's some really interesting research now that shows why bats are able to carry this variety of viruses that don't make them sick. But sometimes when they spill over into other animal or human populations, do make them sick. So we knew that the coronaviruses are circulating in, in bats and then in other animals. And because we knew that it had tipped over 
in the SARS case and then these other circulating seasonal coronaviruses, it was not surprising that it was going to happen again. And we saw something similar with H1N1, the epidemic strain or the pandemic strain, actually, of flu that happened in 2009. And that had a lot of the same characteristics of this virus in the sense that it was easily transmitted from person to person, but it caused a milder milder disease. And there was some overlap with because we had drugs um, and we had a vaccine that was already set up and ready to go. So it was able to be reformulated and have that added in pretty quickly. So we had a lot of data for the flu that we don't have for this. The um, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 is causing more severe disease. But the idea of a respiratory virus coming out of the animal population um, being easily transmitted from person to person and potentially causing its range of disease has been on people's radar in the epidemiology group and in global health and in public health um, groups for decades. So this isn't surprising. Mm. The, the response, I think, that's been hard to deal with is the, the fact that we did in the U.S. dodge a pretty big bullet with both with H1N1, with SARS, with MERS, even with Ebola, when we had little, like, little, very, or little intrusions into our kind of daily consciousness, but nothing that was really significant. There were other countries in the world that had much higher morbidity and mortality from H1N1, obviously from SARS and MERS and Ebola. So we had all of these examples and we had opportunities to really be like, be more aware of what was going on. But I think that in general, we tend to be a, a reactive society instead of a proactive society. So everybody, in the most part, just kind of went, we, you know, skipped that one and didn't have a really generalized understanding of the fact that those were near misses that could have hit us hard. And it was only a matter of time until this one hit. Well, it made I feel like it was both warnings and also if you if you you know rotate your perspective ever so slightly you can also use it to say see it doesn't affect us like everybody else all those other ones that went around the world didn't affect us instead of seeing it as like well we have this, we've dodged those bullets it became to it, it people used it to sort of confirm that we had a, some sort of shield that other places in the world didn't have yeah that's fair absolutely i wonder if you think michelle that this will become more a part of life. Like, do you think this will be another like hundred years from now? They'll be pulling out the COVID nineteen charts the way we pull out the nineteen eighteen flu charts, <laughs> or do you think that we'll see this again in the next for in the foreseeable future? Probably a little bit of both. I think that definitely how this has spread and what we've been doing to react to it or not react to it will definitely go down in the history books. But I do think whether this probably will become seasonal, we will end up with some antivirals, we will end up with a vaccine, and it may just get incorporated with, like you now get, instead of just getting a flu shot every year, you're going to get a flu-coronavirus shot every year. And I hopefully, if we have to do something like that, they end up being the same thing you know, formulate them together, but I don't know. But I do think with the way we have climate change and with population change and continuing interactions with animals um, in ways that we've never done before, this is more and more likely to happen. And my hope is that we can use this and learn from the lessons from this and be more prepared in a sense of being more aware of the global surveillance. Because, I mean, one of the things that's so obvious with this is that viruses don't respect any borders. And so what happens in one part of the country, in one part of the world, can be on your doorstep in a matter of hours because of our, the way that we are global in our travel and in our interactions in that sense. So having being able to take this and say, okay, here's the lessons that we've learned and put them in place to be more proactive in the future and help other countries with surveillance and have communication and resources being shared. They, they are shared pretty well in the scientific community, but sometimes other political issues get in the way and make things harder to share. 
um, or share resources. But in this sense, we are all people and we are in this together. And this probably is going to be more of our new normal in the sense of public health and global health. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Michelle, I, I pledge to you that I would not turn this into my own personal questions. Um, and also, I would like to transition to a part of the show I'd, I'd like to entitle things my husband and I fight about with relationship to uh, COVID-19. So first, my first question is, what do you think about takeout? Is it safe? And does it matter whether the food is hot or cold, which is our most recent fight? Thank you for your patience. <laughs> <laughs> um. I do think that food safety is at a high level in most, uh, in most restaurants. And I do think that they are being very careful and cautious. I have been eating takeout. I have been eating. Oh, see, see, that's what I wanted to hear, Michelle. That's what I wanted to hear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, the reality is this is scary because it is something that you can't see. You can't, you don't have any cues for where it is and what's going on. You don't know for, three, five, 10, 14 days, if you're sick, if somebody else is sick. And that, so all of that increases that those unknowns make this hard and make it scary. But the reality too is 
a virus is an actual particle. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it is or isn't there, but you can, um, you can break it down. You can destroy it. And there's some things that the virus is stable in some circumstances and isn't in others. But I, I mean, I think as far as takeout, there's, they're really being careful when, you know, the restaurants that are still open are being careful with how they prepare food. And even in any normal circumstance, most of those preparation techniques would be fine anyway. Right. And then they're closing it up in something and they're delivering it. So basically I know that there are some people who um, are at significantly high risk that are being really careful even with takeout, but I don't feel like that's something that I'm concerned about. Um, mm-hmm. And so I have been continuing to get takeout. Both hot and cold takeout. Correct, Michelle. I have. I have. Okay. That's what- <laughs> Everybody heard it. Everybody heard it. Thank you so much. Um, My other question is, there seems to not be a lot of great guidance about what family means. So they'll say, don't exercise outside Mm -hmm. of your family group or just stay in contact with your family. Like, so I struggle with, well, if my mother lives up the street and we've both been quarantined for 14 days, is it okay for me to give her a hug or should family just mean who you live in a house with? Because I got lots of people around me hanging out with the grandparents and I don't feel like I'm getting a lot of really clear guidance on this. And I'm hoping you can help me with that. So one of the things that's hard with grandparents is that this virus, and if this was true of SARS as well, does seem to be generally hitting people who are older harder. Mm-hmm. And it does look like, um, and it, we may see, as we get more evidence, you may see a really clear age distinction in this. But my guess is that kids especially are able to be infected and shed virus and not be sick. Mm-hmm. And so the significant concern with grandparents watching grandkids is if the grandkids are exposed to something, they could be shedding virus by gangbusters and exposing people who are more at risk in the older age groups, and really nobody has any idea. I think that's a really significant concern, and I've seen a lot of um, medical professionals who are trying to protect their family and talking about, do I send my kids to my parents just for them to take care of them? And it's a really hard thing if you are not, if you think the kids might have been exposed because there's a good chance that they could be infected and and spreading. Um, I think... As far as in your home and with people that you know, um, there there's a little bit of a, a call that you have to make with that. I, I do know that one of the things that is most significantly correlated with staying healthy is washing your hands the moment you walk in the door every time. So mm. that's a great habit to just walk into no matter what happens. Because here's the reality. Virus on your hands really isn't going to make you sick. What's going to make you sick is the virus on your hands and then touching your eyes or your nose or your mouth because it has to get into your system. So if you are keeping, you know, doing a good job of keeping your house clean um, and whatever comes into it, if you're washing your hands when you're dealing with that, then you've got a good level of protection and that's a high, that has a high correlation with um, staying healthy. When you have your, you know, your family and your parents are down the street and you're both, um, quarantining and you do have that time frame there's no because of the potential high level of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic transmissions i can't say for sure that just because you've been well and quarantined for 14 days that you don't have some you uh, don't have some level of virus shedding going on mm-hmm. that could put somebody else at risk that can, if i can say one other thing about this is the idea of testing just being really, really important because there's so much out there that we don't know. Right. So there's, there's three types of testing. Um, one is the one that they're doing now for people who are actively infected, which is just trying to detect if the viral genetic material is present. And that doesn't mean, that just means that you've been exposed in some way. And it usually correlates with infection. So if the virus genetic material is there, then you are infected. But what they also are going to check is like virus shedding and you can shed or you can have virus genetic material there without having a fully infectious virus. 
So there's another way to study to see if the virus that you know, is being you know tested from a person is actually infectious virus, and that's a much longer, harder way to determine that. But the quick, fast, easier way that we're working on right now or utilizing right now is just you have the virus genetic material. Hopefully, and I've seen a report from CDC that says that they're starting this already. They're going to do um, testing to see if people have developed antibodies to the virus. And so that is what we call, if you have an infection and then you develop an immune response to it, we call it being seroconverted. So you have in your blood, you have antibodies. So if you have antibodies to that disease now, then you have seroconverted. And you can detect that in a blood test. Um, I know they're working on the tests right now. So ideally, we'll be able to, over the next month, to be able to determine how many people actually got sick or had were, had replicating virus in their systems and didn't show outward signs of being sick. And so those numbers, once we have those numbers in a little bit more reliable way, we'll be able to say, yes, it's okay for you to go down the street and give your parents a hug um, because we have a better sense of whether you actively are shedding virus or whether you have immunity or all of those questions will come down um, with better answers over the next six to nine months. But for right now, if you're asking those questions and making those decisions, you have to make a little bit of a decision on without all of that really specific information, which side do you want to err on? I think where I'm struggling is that it really, you know, in the beginning, in the first week or two, when it felt like, okay, well, we all were moving around in the world without a full realization of what this is, then all of our risk is much higher. But now that I've been, you know, basically home for this is my fourth week. Um, only going out and when I do going out being like hyper, hyper careful in a way, obviously I wasn't when we started this to me, that just, it starts to feel different to me. Like, I guess it, I, I, that's where I'm struggling is it feels like, shouldn't there be some sort of maybe not different recommendations, but at least a, a different awareness that, well, now that we're not all moving about like we were in early March, shouldn't some of this some the risk of exposure be a little bit different. And you're probably right that the risk is decreased, um, but I can't say it's zero. Right, 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 and, exactly. And so I think that's, that's just where the, that where do you want to fall? Where do you want to err on which side of, of mm-hmm. that? Because if you, I mean, if you have been out at the grocery store, if you have been out um, or there's some interaction, I mean, it's really, really hard to shut absolutely everything down. So there's there is a potential, and I will I will say like people are being way way more careful from what I can tell in my community um, this weekend versus even a week ago, and that mm-hmm. is I think that is definitely helpful, and I think people are starting to understand a little bit more of what's going on and taking it seriously, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And I do think you're right, like those those instances will decrease, and the longer we are um, as isolated as possible then that will continue to decrease. But, you know, it's the only thing is that you you are very clearly aware of what you do yourself, but you have to understand right. that you have no awareness of what somebody else does. Right. And any interaction has, has a risk involved in it. I think the other side of that, too, though, is this virus is going to be around, as, you know, probably forever at this point. It just is it's circulating... It's in too many people. There's no way to eliminate it from everybody all at the same time. So people will, you know, they're predicting within the next year to two years that probably 90 to 100% of people in the world will have been exposed to this virus in some way. And the idea is if we can slow it down enough for the scientist community to be able and the medical community to be able to find the antivirals and to come up with a vaccine, then the individual impact will be minimized. So... There's actually, um, they're looking at in Germany and, and in London, I mean, in the UK right now, they're looking at the idea of an immunity passport. And yeah, so if they can that. do these tests, yeah, if they can do these tests and show that you have seroconverted, that you have antibodies. And they're also trying to work on trying to figure out how much antibody do you need to have to say that you probably wouldn't get sick again, and then trying to figure out how long they last. But the idea is if you've been exposed and you've either been asymptomatic or you've had some level of virus, 
uh, replication, and you probably are immune, at least to some level, that you would be able to be out in the world and um, interacting because you know a little bit more about what's going on in your system and whether or not you're you're protected or if you are um, safe to interact with other people in a way that doesn't put them or you at risk. So that's, again, that's why testing and understanding a little bit more of what's going on in this is really, really important. But, um, and there's, you know, it's hard because there's an emotional component of fear of the unknown. And again, if we get the testing up and running um, in a higher, more consistent basis, both on the testing of are you now infected or the seroprevalence, um, the seroconversion testing of have you been infected, that's just really important information that's going to help people make better decisions. Oh, so helpful, Michelle. Thank you so much. This has been extraordinarily helpful. Yes, thank you, Michelle. Michelle, would you be open to us asking if our listeners have questions and coming back on with their questions? Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Michelle for spending her time with us and to all of you out there in the medical and research communities for everything you're doing, to all of our essential workers, to the teachers who are figuring this out. Everybody is doing a lot of heroic work right now, and we appreciate all of you. We'll be back here with you on Tuesday to talk about voting and uh, how we think about our civic participation during a pandemic. We'll see you then. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff. Tim Miller, Martha Branitsky, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Amy Whited, and Allie Edwards. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.